Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 177 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Dr. Edwin May and his career with the government's psychic spying program, Stargate. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around for the end of the episode, as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on The Exodus. But first, in 1975, physicist Dr. Edwin May went to work for the Stanford Research Institute. He was assigned to a project involving the psychic power known as remote viewing. He was working with figures like Ingo Swan, Hal Puthoff, and Russell Targ. In time, Dr. May became the head of the program, which he oversaw until its closure in 1995. Since then, he's continued his work in parapsychology. So how did Dr. May become involved? What happened with Project Stargate? And what has Dr. May learned in his unique career? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin today's episode? Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. May for a series of interviews. So in addition to the audio version of today's podcast, we'll also have a video version on my YouTube channel. And I recommend that listeners go there to check that out. And while you're there, uh, please be sure to subscribe and hit the bell icon for notifications. I'm trying to grow my YouTube channel, so I'd really appreciate it. I'm honored to be able to interview Dr. May because a while ago he retired from doing interviews and he doesn't do them these days. But a remote viewer in upstate New York named Jimmy James is a fan of Mysterious World and he knows Dr. May. So he took the initiative to put us in touch and I owe this opportunity to him. One of the things I'm trying to do on Mysterious World is interviews with all of the people that I can who were connected with Stargate and develop a kind of oral history of the program and let everybody tell their story as they experienced it and share their perspective. I'm thus very pleased to be able to speak with Dr. May, as I am everybody else who took part in the program. And on a personal note, Dr. May has experience in the past as a square dance caller, and I'm always happy to talk with fellow dance callers. Will we be doing the usual faith and reason perspectives today and what they have to say about psychic functioning, such as remote viewing? Remote viewing is the reported psychic ability to pick up on information about a remote location without using familiar senses like sight and hearing. Basically, it's supposed to be a weak but natural human ability, something that's part of human nature. We've devoted several previous episodes to remote viewing and similar topics, so we won't be reviewing all of that material today. Listeners who may be less familiar with it should go back and listen to episodes like episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. 
episodes 102 and 103 on remote viewing, and episodes 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult. As we covered in those last two episodes, Christian thought, and Catholic thought in particular, has recognized a place for weak natural human abilities, like psychic powers are claimed to be. In fact, doctors of the Church, like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, believed in what we today would call psychic abilities. Whether such abilities actually exist is a matter for scientific studies to figure out. Uh, we won't be focusing on that today because our purpose is to explore Dr. May's career working for the government on this project, but you can check out both past and future episodes to get a sense of what current scientific evidence suggests. Before we get to the interview with Dr. May, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Kevin E., Greg W., Arlia S., David R., and Tori. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And with no further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Edwin May. Dr. Edwin C. May spent the first part of his research career as a physicist doing low-energy experimental nuclear physics. He became interested in doing research into parapsychological phenomena in 1976 when he joined the U.S. government-sponsored work at SRI International, including what eventually became known as the Defense Department Stargate Program. Under Stargate, he authored or co-authored 300 formerly classified reports to various U.S. government agencies within the military and intelligence community. Dr. May has managed complex interdisciplinary research projects for the U.S. federal government. He presided over 70% of the $20 million funding and 85% of the data collection for the government's 22-year involvement in parapsychological research. Currently, Dr. May is executive director of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research, where he continues his parapsychological studies. Dr. May, welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Well, thanks, Jimmy. It's a pleasure to be here. I need to correct one thing you just said, however. What's that? Uh, my first interest in parapsychology uh, dumped on me in 1971, long before I had ever heard of the Stargate program. Okay. My, bo my boss at the time in the Cyclotron Laboratory, uh, John Youngerman, had built a gadget, uh, a pendulum. And the bob of the pendulum was a very shiny mirror, and he had laser interferometry to know exactly where that position was. And he wanted to know if people could use their mind to change the swinging pendulum. And I, what are you doing? You know, at that time, I'd never even heard of extrasensory perception. This is silly, but I'm a good guy in terms of building stuff. So we put a lot of effort. Long story short, uh, this was such a sensitive thing that the only thing it was good for was a, a, an exquisite seismometer. We could measure trucks going along uh, Interstate 80. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so we, we gave up the project. But that introduced, was the beginning. And then the next stage of that, 
Professor Charles Tart, uh, professor of psychology, had arranged for a, a seminar over the weekend. And I was, you know, in my 30s at the time and bored out of my mind. So I saw this thing, come and learn about out-of-body experiences. What in the devil is that? No idea. Right. And, and we should mention for the audience, Charles Tart is another famous parapsychological researcher. Well, yeah, but he'd probably much more be like uh, considered as, a, as a, one of the leading authors in terms of altered states of consciousness in normal psychology. So he's both. Anyway, um, there was a guy by the name of Bob Monroe, who has a facility now in, in Virginia called the Monroe Institute. But at that time, he was in his 50s, and I'm in my 30s, and I'm thinking of this old guy out there talking about the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. Here he heard about it, that he had gotten out of his body, whatever that meant, and he pitched his, pinched his girlfriend on the butt and raised a welt. Oh, really? So I bought the book called Journeys Out of the Body, read it. Said, oh, hey, if that guy can do it, I'm a physicist. I should be able to do that. <laughs> so I tried a couple nights in a row. Nothing happened. I said, this is silly and put it away. Okay. Then, then I ran into about uh, somewhere about a year later, a guy by the name of Chuck Honerton, who was instrumental in the dream research at Maimonides Medical Center in terms of ESP dream research. And he had answers to all my questions. And, and long story short, he became uh, a mentor of mine for a very long time. Uh, spent a year in India, trotting around, trying to find miracles, found none. And uh, when, <laughs> when I came back, I worked at my mom's medical center for seven months. So that was my first immersion into research. I ran into Ingo Swan, and he got me my job at, a, at SRI and Stargate. That's okay. how it all began. So before uh, we get too far down the road, why don't we talk about your own personal background? Uh, sure. Where did, where did you grow up? What kind of family life did you have? What was your education? That kind of stuff. What would you like oh, us okay. to know? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm an open book. Um, I was born in 1940, before the U.S. entered World War II even. And um, it turns out my father was in the Navy. And we, when the, we, after Pearl Harbor, we followed his, uh, my family, my mother and my two sisters followed him around while he was being stationed around in the U.S. till he went overseas uh, in the Pacific. For some reason, after the war, we ended up settling in Tucson, Arizona. What a Jewish family is moving to the uh, Tucson, Arizona, in the middle of this seemed utterly ridiculous to us. But we bought a 40-acre ranch, and very odd for that period of time, two families lived together on that ranch, sort of communally, uh, the DeRoy family and the May family. And they had two sisters, or two daughters, and we had two daughters, and, and so on. And it was fun because I grew up as a rancher. We had 40 acres of alfalfa and chickens and uh, eight horses and a mule. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I learned how to shoot, um, learned how to calf rope. I was a junior rodeo character. Um, so that was a lot of fun. I, mm. Probably the biggest impact it had on me, I became a very, very well marksman with a rifle, uh, 22 caliber. and. Uh, I was the youngest person in the uh, National Rifle Association. In those days, that was a good organization um, uh, to get what's called this Distinguished uh, uh, Marksman Award. I was like nine years old. And I could, that's still still with me. Uh, I don't shoot much anymore. In fact, for a very long time, I haven't. But I was on various uh, teams, uh, rifle teams, and competed at the national level and, and so on. 
And uh, what, where did you go to school? How did you uh, get into physics? Um, I went, my parents shipped me off to a boarding school, preparatory school, they called it in those days, when in my in seventh grade through uh, senior year. And uh, in my sophomore year, I took biology. I wanted to become a biologist. In my junior year, I took chemistry. I wanted to be a chemist. Guess what I took in my, in my mm-hmm. senior year was physics. And I just was fascinated by it. And uh, I went off to the University of Rochester. My mother was really upset with me because I didn't apply to MIT. I was born in Boston and she grew up in Boston. We got to go to MIT. So, oh, that's an engineering school. Yuck. I want to go to a physics school. (laughs) So I went to the University of Rochester, which was a much better choice. And um, I started in the physics program. And it turned out... uh, on the first day of physics class, my the professor came to me and said, I'm sorry you can't be a member of this class because you didn't get into the calculus course. Your mathematics aren't strong enough, and I need to have teach uh, to use calculus. Hmm. So he said, I can't force you to leave. And I said, can I stay? And I did, uh, because he, he was so far out ahead of the calculus course, he had to teach it as he went along. So I did very well in my course after all. And you ended up getting your doctorate. Uh, not there. That was only undergraduate. Yeah. Uh, then I went to graduate school at uh, then was called Carnegie Tech, now called Carnegie Mellon. That's the good news. I flunked out of there. <laughs> uh, it, uh, the only the only piece of reality I had in those days with regard to physics was I was walking down the corridor on the second day I was at the school and I look into this laboratory. And there was kind of a, a rotund chap from India. Sachin Jha was his name. And he was huddled over a table with apparatus. I went in there and said, oh, that's a gamma gamma anger correlation table. I said, huh? How do you know that? I said, well, I did an experiment at Rochester doing the same thing. That started probably a 20-year relationship with this man. I worked in his lab, and that was the only physics reality I did. I, I did horribly in all my classes. I learned to play a bagpipe, and I play pinochle over lunch and, and so on. And when you flunk out of a graduate school, they usually give you a, a door prize called a master's degree. I was so terrible <laughs> that they didn't even give me a master's degree. And the Army was knocking at my door early on in Vietnam to get, you know, draft me. And Ja... Um, said, hey, I've got a contract for the Navy. Tell you what, how about if I hire you? I'm going to pay you and hire you as a lab assistant, which he did, save my butt. And one day I came to the office and he said, come with me. And he grabs me literally by the hand. And we walked down the street to the University of Pittsburgh, literally down the street, into a lab where this guy there named Bernie Cohen, who I have no idea who the hell he was. And Jaw said, Bernie, you need to have this guy. He's the best experimentalist I've ever met. He's had troubles academically. And Bernie said, Ja, anybody you recommend, he's my student. And that's where I got my PhD eventually. Okay. And you published a variety of papers before getting in the field in physics before getting into parapsychology. Yeah. In fact, there's a, an amusing story about that. I went to Bernie and I said, hey, look. I don't want to write my thesis that says, in the beginning, God invented a nucleus. Come on, that's ridiculous. How about what, what can I do? He says, well, you've already published some work in the journal of, uh, in Physical Review. Uh, you can take one of those papers and have it as the front end of your thesis. I said, okay. I have a very short thesis, <laughs> it's 47 pages. And uh, so I did that, and it was no problem. 
I get into the graduation where you have to defend your thesis in front of an army of uh, you know, critical uh, uh, scientists. And one guy, there was a fellow by the name of Norman Ostern, a very, very uh, imposing character. He had no hair on his head anywhere. And he was sitting there flipping through a copy of the uh, physical review. He says, Mr. May, I'm in the coat and tie and sweating like crazy because it's hot in the summer. And so I see a very clear uh, correlation between the first part of your proposed thesis and the scholarly work published. And I said, no, it's an exact copy, sir. <laughs> Wrong thing to say. Because <laughs> what I failed to do in my thesis was to footnote, I mean, to reference myself. And this was his way to just unnerve me, which it in fact did. <laughs> but it, he let it survive. It was really troublesome. And they eventually gave, well, not quite, not quite. Interesting story here, <laughs> Jimmy. Um, in those days, you had to prove proficiency in two languages other than your native language. I commissioned them to do it. Let me do Fortran because I was pretty swift at Fortran. They wouldn't do it. So I uh, had, had taken German in high, in, in high school and two years of German in college. The problem was that the last time, uh, my last class in college was, Ed, we'll give you a passing grade if you promise me you will never, ever try to speak German again. <laughs> oh, dear. So, I, but with a dictionary then, and even now, I can translate anything. And But they switched over uh, to Princeton Education standardized multiple choice questions. And I don't know if you know about German. It's a real big pain because they have three genders and the, and the slight different endings and all the adjectives. Yeah. Oh, man. It's highly inflected. Yeah. It's just terrible. So I, I flunked it seven times. Okay. <laughs> so I said, well, I don't know a word of French. I got to try the French exam anyway. So I get the French uh, and I'm sitting there and I can't read any of the questions. <laughs> so I said, close the book. And then I randomly distributed my answer in the sheet. And of course that didn't work. Second time, uh, there was this very attractive woman. I sat next to her and said, she probably knows French. I'll copy everything she did. And that didn't work. So I never did pass my, my exams to become a candidate for the degree. I had already written my thesis, already had gotten a, a postdoc uh, assignment at Davis. And I said, I'm out of here. I don't care. I'm leaving. So I drove across the country with a friend of mine and we camped out all the way. By the time I got to UC Davis, my mailbox there was stuffed with angry letters because in my absence, the University of Pittsburgh had abolished retroactively all requirements for the language degree, for the language issues of the degree. So they gave me my PhD after all. Oh, okay. Well, that worked out. Lucky me. <laughs> In uh, now, you mentioned uh, Ingo Swan and uh, how his involvement in you joining the Stanford Research Institute that was in mm -hmm. 1976. What happened on that occasion? How did that work? It was actually uh, late in '75. Uh, wow. When I came back from India, I worked at my these and I went to a party. A friend of mine took me to a party at Ingo's flat. And I met Ingo and we became really good friends, actually. Uh, although one of the things we were out for dinner one night in the village and he said, Ed, you don't want to be my friend. How come Ingo says I can be a bitch on wheels End quote. And I put that was an understatement, actually. And I, I put that in the obit I wrote for Ingo after he passed away. <laughs> but we did some work at Maimonides uh, with the random number generator that I built for Chuck Onerton. This um, is in New York. This is in New York, yeah. And in fact, uh, the picture of it is on my wall behind me. I can show you. Um, 
got astounding results, actually, much to my surprise. And uh, Ingo said, well, um, you know, I'm glad you're an experimentalist. The two guys I'm working with out in California, neither of them are physicists. Well, one's a physicist, but he's not an experimental physicist. I need you to come out there because if I'm going to do something magical with psychokinesis, I don't want to be claimed later that uh, somebody flipped the light switch down the hall and it could count for my effort. I said, okay, but what's going on? He says, I can't tell you. So he, he, Ingo went out to California and just beat up mercilessly a poor put off because Ingo was not your quiet, shy guy. And sure enough, Hal hired me as a consultant in late 75. And that consultant status went on until 1979, where they finally brought me on board as a senior research physicist. And Russ Targ left in 82 and Hal left in 85. And I took over the program as a director in 85. And you then shepherded it for the next decade. For the next decade, exactly. One thing we might want to clarify for the audience is there are there's more than one type of physicist. Um, now, physicists study basic uh, you know phenomena in nature, but some physicists are on the theoretical end, meaning they propose theories and do calculations and then propose perhaps experiments to test the theories, but yes. they don't carry out the experiments themselves. There are Usually other not. Yeah. Yeah. There are other physicists known as experimental physicists who do that. And mm -hmm. so that's what Ingo was saying is we've got we've we don't have the kind of experimental guys who are used to running the physical tests at SRI that on this project that I would want. And so that's why he was interested in having you there. Uh, to some degree. Yes. Uh, Hal is not a physicist. He's an electrical engineer, damn smart one, mm -hmm. and knows an awful lot of physics. And Russell Targ, though, is a physicist. He's a physicist. Uh, he never finished his graduate school studies of it. But a very good guy, and he's um, he's both experimental and uh, theoretical, both, uh, Russ is. Okay. Now, uh, could you tell us about the work that you did at SRI? What kinds of tasks were you and your team doing? I understand that the program was intended to have both a research aspect and an operational aspect, but it didn't quite work out that way. What can you tell us here? Well, early on, uh, there was only three tasks. And all of them were to gather intelligence. They, the agencies funding us, CIA, and then eventually uh, Foreign Technology Division of the Air Force, and then eventually Defense Intelligence Agency, they were absolutely not interested in research. They wanted to know. And, and, and by that, we should clarify research into how does this, what is this phenomenon? How does it work? Yes. Things like that. They were interested in the practical application of it. Yes, and the reason that was true, in 1969, a well-known uh, information theorist in the Soviet Union, Ippolit Mosevich Kogan is his name, wrote an article in 69 saying, is telepathy possible? And uh, the intelligence community of that day said, well, we don't know whether it's possible or not, but it has obvious uh, intelligence collection implication to it, if it is true. So that's how they brought Ingo Swan initially out there to try to see whether any of this was true. And that was one of the three tasks in the early years that we were confronted with. One is to verify, is there a threat from anywhere, China, Cuba, or, any, or Russia, if this stuff is true? Not to validate it. They assumed it was, it was true. 
uh, that ESP is real. We were not in those days ever concerned at all about showing the existence of remote viewing or psychic stuff. Is it real or not? That was not the issue. They said, let's, let's assume that it is. Second thing, if we could be actively spying using it to use the vernacular, then so could they. Could we, and then we call that section called foreign assessment. What threat does it propose? And can we develop countermeasures to uh, ameliorate that, that threat? And thirdly, we could do some research, but it's not the fundamental research to figure out how it all works. The research we were asked to do was what can we do to improve the out quality of the output? of the product. And that went on from 72 uh, through well, with some variation up to about 1985, where I ended up getting a contract to uh, most of which was basic research at that time. Now, um, this so one thing I want to make sure the listeners understand is that this was a public side of the program. This was being run out of these government think tanks initially or defense contractors, initially SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, later SAIC, the uh, Science Applications International Corporation. And these are civilian organizations. They're not part of the Defense Department. Correct. So so you were doing work on the on the civilian side of the program, but meanwhile, there was also, or at some point, there developed a Defense Department program that was run out of Fort Meade, Maryland, and it went through a number of different names, uh, Grill Flame, Center Lane, Sun Street, and eventually Stargate, which is what it's known for having as its code name. What about the civilian side? Uh, what did they call it? Well, there really wasn't that much of a split between the two. Um, the, the civilian side, uh, we all thought of it, and so does the government, as the contractor side. That um, this Department of Defense or any agency in the government says, well, we have this need. Uh, we can publish requirements. Uh, please submit us proposals to help us solve this particular problem, whether it's transportation or who knows what all. In this case, it was the intelligence community, and we had this need. Turns out they did what is called sole source, where they don't put the request for proposal out to a large number of different people to compete, and they, they choose who would be the best contractor. They sole sourced it to us for a variety of reasons, and we've written extensively as to why that's the case. Um, so it wasn't until 19, late 78 to 1979, much over the objection of us, that the Army, uh, uh, Army INSCOM, the Internal Security Command, wanted to have their own unit. And we said, no, 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 it's too early to do that, because up until that time, we were, we were providing the intelligence product. But they did it over our objections, and they screened, I don't know, maybe three or 400 people, uh, and they ended up with six of them at Fort Meade initially. And uh, they came out one at a time to SRI and a program we called Technology Transfer. And um, it was one of the amusing parts of it uh, because they're so secret, they didn't want anybody to know. Each person that came out for a two-week visit one at a time signed themselves in at our front desk under the exact same name, namely the, their colonel who was the boss, Scotty Watt. 
And so we're beginning to laugh because we have a classified building and they're all coming in and revealing stuff that bizarre is going on here, including one woman who signed in as, as Scotty Wilde. Well, come on, guys, that's ridiculous. But of those uh, six people, four produced significant results, one of whom was, uh, was Joe McMonagle. Um, and so that started it. Um, then uh, Ingo started working on, uh, actually, this is less personal. It's more about the research side of your questionnaire. Mm -hmm. um, Ingo Swan was probably a huge respect for the man, not only because he got me my job, but more importantly, he would spend up to 12 hours a day at the library at Stanford uh, looking at trying to understand what his ex internal experiences are. Now, he's not a scientist. He had an IQ off the charts, 160, something like that. Very smart guy. Um, but he had no science background. He's an artist. And so he discovered something called operant conditioning. Now, uh, in my past, I spent uh, about a year and a half as the chief physicist at the San Francisco Biofeedback, Biofeedback Institute of San Francisco, which I learned a lot about how bodies work and the autonomic nervous system, blah, blah, blah. I built hardware for them. And I know a lot about operant conditioning. Unfortunately, Ingo did not. <laughs> but nonetheless, he thought, aha, and he developed a training procedure. And this training procedure was uh, he would give uh, the geographical coordinates to someplace and ask somebody to respond very quickly to it, because that was his operant conditioning idea. And he developed this training method. And it was, excuse me, a disaster. And the reason it was a disaster, and I, I blame all of us for this, uh, we shouldn't allow him to do it. He would sit, let's say you were the remote viewer, and I'm sitting here, and I have an easel in front of me. You can't see what's on the easel, and I see a photograph on the easel. You do not. And you remember the old uh, program called 20 Questions? <laughs> yes. Okay, so you would say, well, I'm getting an image of water, and I say, correct. Oh, well, it's maybe a waterfall. Can't feed back on that <laughs> and so on. Ingo was giving answers to these questions. You didn't need to be psychic to get a perfectly good score on that because Ingo violated and we allowed him to do it. Um, uh, the fundamental rules of good studies, blinding conditions to blind the person. Not only should the interviewer be blind to what the target is, so should the analyst mm -hmm. <laughs> who's looking at the data. And all that was broken. Uh, unfortunately, Inga was allowed to train these original six and then other people that joined from, from INSCOM uh, unattended in the SRI office in New York City. A disaster. And it developed into what we now have as an Ingo Swan cult. And Ingo himself agreed that it was a cult that they that Ingo could do no wrong. And this this is a um, one of the downsides of Ingo's background in Scientology. One size fits all. Well, that doesn't work here. We had a we had a we had a small riot going on because there are very competent remote viewers we had who thought the Ingo Swan technique was ridiculous. In fact, he would have signs on the wall that says, content be damned, structure of all that matters. If you have a certain thing that goes to this part of the page, you have something else goes to another part of the page. And we said, that's crazy. You, you get people caved in on the structure and forget about the fact that they're supposed to be psychic at the same time. And uh, I was eventually charged with the responsibility of evaluating his procedure. And it didn't work. Worked well for him, but hardly anybody else. What uh, alternative do you propose? What have you found to work? 
That's a good question. Um, there's no one size fits all. Uh, I sit down and we've got, I'm, I'm working now with five people who are really top of the line remote viewers and each one of them does something different. Um, I, my job is to, as a monitor, and I learned a great deal of positively about being a monitor from Ross Tart, who's really good at that job, is to help guide somebody. For example, if you sit there and say, oh, I know what the target is, it's uh, uh, Times Square in New York City. So my job to go back and say, well, um, what is it that leads you to the conclusion of Times Square? Oh, it's chaotic. Okay, well, there are lots of things that are chaotic that are not that. So try to get people to describe the experience rather than to interpret the experience. And other than that, I, there is not, there's no magic bullet here. Mm -hmm. So, and this actually coheres with some of the technique that Ingo developed, which was trying to avoid the analysis that your mind wants to perform on the impressions you're getting. Yeah, he called it analytic overlay, and, and that part of what he did was right. Mm -hmm. So um, I understand that at one point there was a name proposed uh, for your program that you weren't particularly fond of. Uh, what was that? I walked out of the Pentagon with um, a Colonel Pete McNeilis who said, hey, we've got a new nickname for your program. And I said, what's that? Quantum Leap. He said, oh, no, does it have to be? What's wrong with Quantum Leap? I said, hey, Pete, that is the... The quantum leap progress is the smallest possible progress above zero. <laughs> Can we change the name? And that's how Stargate was born, the name Stargate. Okay. Um, now, as we said, in 1985, you became uh, head of the program, uh, put off in target, moved on. And in 1991, it was transferred from SRI to SAIC. Um what was it like for you running the program? I imagine there were both some satisfactions and some challenges. Uh, mostly satisfactions, uh, because uh, I had um, things changed drastically. I had a, a $10 million contract uh, from the Army Medical Research and Development Command. And the fellow in charge of that was a Major General Garrison Rapid. And over years, we became really good friends. And what he did, which was unique, uh, most all the money that we came uh, came to the project up to that point was commissioned by various a agencies in the in the intelligence community who would um, what the, the technical term is called MIPR. And I don't know what that actually means. <laughs> they would send the money to someone who would then send the money to us. Including Congress would send us money that way. But. Gary Ratman, General Ratman, uh, took $10 million out of his budget for the medical command. He didn't get the money from anywhere else. He was so committed to trying to understand how this stuff actually works. It was the first time in the history of our program where we had a sizable fraction of what we were to do is to try to figure out how this stuff actually works. So that was that was really satisfying. And as part of that, we had a scientific oversight committee to protect us that we're not fooling ourselves and to protect the clients. We're not cheating on them and so on. And to be a member of that committee. And we had two Nobel laureates on it and other skeptics. And I'll tell you a brief story about that. Um, 
their job was to do three things. One, to review our protocols before we did anything. And we were damn good at that. So that was pretty easy. The second thing that they were charged with is they had unannounced drop-in privileges, which none of them took advantage of. And they watched over us for five years. And then the, the most important part of it was when we wrote a uh, final report, like in my first year with that in 85, I had 35 different projects to do for that money. And each one had a final report. Each one had an interim report. And if you want to know something, it was a giant pain in the butt for me. It was writing all those reports rather, rather than doing research. But um, the, the uh, scientific oversight committee would look at these reports and to assess them on paper as if they were submitted to the journal of their own discipline. There were physics people there and engineering people and all kinds of psychologists and philosophers, what have you. In fact, we even had a, a in for a human use committee, which was part of that. Uh, they all had to have super clearances. And the Department of Defense uh, regulation for human use review to make sure you're not abusing humans, you have to have a member of the clergy, believe it or not. And we found a Buddhist monk that had, in fact, a secret clearance. <laughs> Nakasone was his name, which I thought was really fun. Um, one of the other members of the committee was a longtime friend of mine. He and I had been worked together, uh, Mel Schwartz. And Melvin Schwartz worked at Stanford Physics. And eventually he was awarded the Nobel Prize with Leon, Leberman, Leon Letterman for discovering the muon neutrino. Who cares what that is? So I went up to Mel afterwards and said, hey, how would you like to be our, on our scientific oversight committee? He says, you know, I think it's all BS. Are you kidding me? You're wasting your time. I said, why do you want me? And I said, well, because you, the Nobel Prize looks good on the masthead. That's why I want you. And I said, no, Mel, the reason I want you because I think you're an honest scientist. Would you do it? And he said, okay, what if after looking at you for some period of time, and I decided still all nonsense, then what? And I said, well, if you can convince the other members of the committee, what you're looking at is all nonsense, then I'll quit immediately and I'll come to work for you at Brookhaven National Laboratory and back to doing physics. He said, done. I said, Mel, we're not even close to done. What are you talking about? What if after watching us for uh, a year and talking to other members of the committee, what if you decide there's something interesting here? That caught him off guard. And he said, I will donate for free some fraction of my time to help you figure out how it works. And he did that up until about a year before he passed away. Wow. So that, that's a nice segue then to talking about what might have convinced him. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about the evidence concerning uh, remote viewing? Now, as listeners of the program will know, it's not claimed that this always works, but it sometimes hits and sometimes misses. Um, can you give us an example of what was a big hit? Sure. Uh, to put a little background for you here, uh, Jimmy, the There's something called inferential statistics in almost all of human research. They're always based from, from medical trials to sociology, what have you. You say, well, you know, sometimes it works. There's no human endeavor that works correctly right every single time. 
<laughs> even <laughs> shining, even your autonomic nervous system doesn't behave the same every time you measure it. So there, you have to have some way of, of, of dealing with that. And it's called inferential statistics. And there's books on my shelf and disciplines about how we analyze all that data. That will convince no one because there is no standard of what it takes. Um, one of the stalwarts in our field is a guy named uh, uh, Stanley Krippner. And at the time, he was uh, head of the a division of the American Psychological Association called Humanistic Psychology. And he invited me to give a, uh, an invited talk at one of their conventions on belief versus evidence in physics. And I can tell you briefly about that story because it's relevant to the, your question. Um, Murray, Murray Gelman, very famous physicist, won the Nobel Prize. And one of the few examples where he put together an idea, uh, in theoretically, before the experiment was done. He said, this must be the true. Let's look for this experiment. All right. Let's look for this project. Uh, it's called the Omega Minus Particle at Brookhaven. And uh, I can't remember the exact numbers here, so, but it's conceptually not too far off from what I'm saying. Uh, they have what is called a bubble chamber, which... Uh, can uh, track these high energy particles at the uh, accelerator and you can see the bubbles and it's in a magnetic field and how they occur. You learn a lot about what the particles are. And they can take a bubble chamber picture once every six seconds because they have to recharge the thing and so on. So they ran for a long number, of, I mean, months and months and months together, uh, full time, every six seconds, bang, 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 bang. And they saw two events, two events out of all that data, which was, in fact, evidence of the omega minus particle. Then they ran for another long period of time, something like three times as long, and saw no further events. On the basis of that data, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. Now, that kind of data would not make it into the Journal of Parapsychology as evidence of anything. Mm -hmm. So why? What's the difference? Well, first of all, he's Murray Gilman, not Ed May. <laughs> he works at Brookhaven National Laboratory, not the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. There is this understandable, completely understandable bias toward theory versus experiment versus independent researchers. Even today, independent researchers are ignored to a large measure. I have a colleague uh, who wrote a paper, a brilliant theoretical physicist, um, and the paper's been looked at by mathematics and not just him and others. It's a brilliant paper that deserves the Nobel Prize. This paper is able to, was able to compute the properties of the Higgs boson long before it was invented. And it turned out it, it was correct. And he had theoretical understandings of dark matter and dark energy. A brilliant paper. He cannot get it published. Why? Because he's an independent researcher working out of his home. Mm hmm and that's that's a serious problem for us. Okay, now what constitutes evidence? Uh, Jessica Utz, Professor Jessica Utz, is a um, statistics professor. Statistics professor, and in 2016, she was elected the top statistician in the country as president of the American Statistical Association. And in her 70-minute address, seven minutes of which, and it's on my YouTube uh, screen, I don't know if you have a chance to look at it, uh, she fessed up in public of her interest in parapsychology and addresses this issue about statistics. And it turns out, doesn't matter, but I'd like to run something by you for, for your listeners. Let's suppose you wanted to open up a brand new restaurant wherever you live, right? 
and uh, gee, that's kind of neat. <clears throat> and uh, so you it does you don't have a lot of money, but you can afford a place that seats 19 people, and it's got the right decor. You got the best chef in the neighborhood and uh, brilliant wine cellar and all that stuff, right? And 19 is great. I love prime numbers. There you go. It's a good prime number. And 19 people come and fill up a big fanfare opening night. 19 people fill up your restaurant, right? And for the next three or four days after that, 17 of those original 19 people come to your restaurant. What would you say about the quality of your restaurant? Well, I would say that 17 of the 19 customers must have been pretty pleased with it because they're coming back. And I'm pleased because they're coming back, which is keeping me in business. And I'm also pleased because 17 is another prime number. Okay, that's it. That's why it all worked, I think. Okay, so hold that thought, Jimmy, for a moment. Um, over from 1975 to 1995, uh, various elements of the intelligence community tasked us or the people at Fort Meade with fi over 500 separate intelligence collection uh, tasking to do that. Right? And those, all that, the 504 missions were uh, spread across 19 different federal agencies. That's where the number came from. The usual suspects, CIA the army the navy and so on of those seven of those 19 agencies 17 of them return with additional brand new missions end of story so <laughs> that's mean, an indication that they found the intelligence you developed useful and they came back as repeat customers yep and uh, the winner of that is a joint task force military joint task force based out of alameda here in california uh, for their job is drug interdiction this was after the Cold War. And they came back 172 separate missions. They would say, okay, not quite this way. Stick a pin in the map in, in U.S. territorial waters. We know by other reason, other means, a boat is, is leaving Hong Kong or Singapore loaded with contraband stuff. Where can we pick it up and, and board it in U.S. territorial waters two weeks in advance? And we were damn good at that job. You'd have to be if they come back 170 times. Yeah. So so that addresses the issue, and, and not really well, actually. Uh, what, back in the statistic region, what is it, and I don't know the answer to this, that convinces people. I have a good friend. His name is Stephen Coslin. He used to be head of the uh, 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 neuropsychology department at uh, Harvard and I met him there, and then he came to California, and we're still casual friends. We have pre-pandemic, we'd have lunch every once in a while. He doesn't believe this stuff. I said, hey, what would convince you? Same question you just asked. And he said, I have to work all the time. And I said, Stephen, that's BS if you don't mind me saying so. You, in your own discipline, is there anything that you do that works every time? I said, well, I guess not. Then why the hell are you applying that to me? Hmm. And this is a fundamental problem that has been in parapsychology since, since forever, since the SPR founding, the Society for Psychical Research in London, which was founded in 1882. And they've been struggling with, they exist today. They've published a, a quarterly journal every single quarter. They've not missed one, including through two world wars. So one thing that would convince some people is a particularly vivid demonstration. The statistics may leave some people cold, um, but which may be why your friend says, well, I would want to see it work all the time because a statistical argument isn't impressive for him. Sure. 
what's an example of something that happened on the program uh, that would be a really big hit that was impressive to people at the time? Yeah, well, it, it, it spawned a big fight with one of the members of our scientific oversight committee. So it's a good point. Um, one of the things that we were tasked uh, using remote viewing in an experimental circumstance of uh, directed energy weapon systems could remote viewing detect whatever a variety of weapon systems. One of those, it turned out, uh, leaving aside all the double blind protocols and so on, which were in place, was a an electron accelerator uh, in the hills near Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in Berkeley, in California here. And uh, the remote viewer just basically nailed it. Described uh, the Westgate at Livermore and described the shape of the building and so on. Just beautiful. I mean, top of the line remote viewing. Okay. One of the um, critics we had on the oversight committee, he was a, a Bayesian statistician and head of the department at the University of California at Riverside. He beat up on us forever. He doesn't believe in any of this stuff. Uh, all the analysis is too complex. There's got to be some, a mistake there. Uh, Chuck Onaton coined the term ESP, meaning error someplace. <laughs> so he was convinced there's an error in there. And then I showed him the Westgate picture. And he says, I got it. He was convinced based on that brilliant piece of remote viewing. So Jessica Utz was there with me, and we took this poor guy out in the parking lot and read him the riot act. And, and Jessica's talked to the ASA, American Society, uh, American Statistics Association, um, single evidence, single experience is not evidence of anything. And in her talk, she says, she's asked statisticians and skeptics, okay, what would convince you more data or a single personal experience? And as humans, she said, most often a personal experience, just like I described. Another uh, incident that I've read about um, that occurred fairly early on involved Joe McMonagle, and it was another one where the client initially was dismissive of the results, and then there was some powerful confirmation. It involved a Russian submarine. Uh, what yep. can you tell us about that story? Sure. Um, uh, the um, National Security Council. Uh, advisory arm to the president. They had known uh, about a place in northern Russia in Sverdivinsk that had been a submarine base ever since World War II. And they also knew, contrary to what is out in the public about it, we have all the data from them, um, is that they knew that they were building this huge submarine uh, called the Typhoon Class, even had the name of it. And they tasked Joe with, uh, can't exactly remember, I think it might have been a photograph of, no, it was, I know what it was, excuse me. He was tasked with just, uh, you know, I don't remember exactly. It could have been the geographical coordinates of it, most likely. And Joe gave this marvelous description, in fact, in one of our books, ASP, uh, 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 ASP Wars East and West, we have a 137-page transcript of his work, which was, Brilliant, just brilliant. 
and he describes the construction of a, of a submarine and silent blah blah blah. Basically, in, in, gave in, a, inside of a sealed building that they had satellite imagery of that was exactly. distant from the shore. No, it was not. That's oh. uh, Joe, Joe is wrong when he puts it out that way. He won't ever say that again because I said you can't keep saying that. That's not right. You know, he would say the Russians, uh, the Russians wouldn't build a submarine, you know, that uh, uh, distance from the shore. And they wouldn't. And they didn't. <laughs> this building is right smack dab on the water. And we have satellite imagery of it at the time and so on. But nonetheless, Joe described the, the submarine extremely accurately. And um, as an aside, we have permission to go. There's one remaining uh Typhoon glass sub surviving as a training machine, uh, and we have permission to go on board with the film crew. So I told my wife, "Hey, what we want to do is go under the polar ice cap. No, in an old Soviet leaking boat. No way. You know, so yeah, if I have to die, what a great way to go. You know, <laughs> um, I don't want to downgrade anything that that uh, uh, Joe does. He and I are close, close friends. We've worked together since the seventies, and we consider." each other brothers and I've been back there doing all the surgeries and blah, 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 blah. But occasionally he gets stuff wrong. You know, yeah. he's a human. Joe has and, some health problems. We should explain that he's had yeah. to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there was a brilliant piece of work. Um, uh, there was a guy, uh, head of the, uh, somebody on the NSC that came out there, uh, a, I can name him. Why not? Uh, Captain uh, Jake Stewart, very smart guy. Um, so they were ha happy with that. But Joe did more interesting things uh, in terms of but probably one of the best you're interested in and the best result was by Ingo Swan years back. He was given the geographical coordinates of a site that's about 30 kilometers north of Moscow. And what he did, instead of writing and drawing like they do in a normal remote viewing thing, he expressed his experience in modeling it with clay. And he said, oh, this is a four-sided pyramid that's truncated on top, and it's huge. And he cut it in half, uh, the clay model, and it made it hollow inside. He said, you don't want to be inside whenever it's running. Turned out, he nailed it. It is a uh, over-the-horizon anti-ballistic missile site, still exists there in Moscow. It's about 400 meters on a side, huge. And again, we have permission to get inside of it with a film crew if we ever get to doing a documentary of it. Cool. Well, let's talk about the other side of the spectrum. In addition to big hits, there have been some big misses. And I understand mm -hmm. uh, I'd like you to tell us about at least one of those that involved the State of the Union address. Yeah, um, this was not a formal task. Um, one of our remote viewers uh, handed me an 18 page. Uh, write-up of an experience he had. This was before the State of the Union address. This was back in, during the Reagan administration in the in 80s? The Reagan administration, yeah. And, and so this was a spontaneous ESP experience yeah. that he had. It, he wasn't assigned to do this. That's right. In fact, there are two things uh, associated, and I'll discuss both of them with you. Uh, if you're going to sort of, in the vernacular, if you're going to ask the genie a question, you better make sure you know what question you're actually asking the genie because the genie will answer the question you thought you were asking <laughs> but didn't anyway so um this viewer gave me this page and i read the whole thing and it, it, it gave a detailed description of what 
long before 9-11, of a 9-11 experience. During the State of the Union, a plane was coming down the Potomac River to land at the airport there and swerve into the, crash into the uh, Capitol building and kill everybody. Okay, so I went to uh, uh, Jim Salyer, who was uh, on site with us for eight years from the Defense Intelligence Agency. He had a master's degree in in, um, genetics, was a very smart guy very irascible at times. And he read it and he said, Ed, are you handing this to me um, officially? I said, what do you mean by that? He says, if this is official, I will take it as the truth. This was a month before the State of the Union. I will take it as real and God help you if you're wrong. Because he'd have to act on it. He'd have to run it through the system. That's right. And I thought, holy cow. (laughs) I had the worst 24 hours of my career, literally. So I took the thing back to the office and I read it in detail, read it in detail. And um, I decided at the end of the day not to hand it in. Turned out, of this 18 pages, there were only two things that were right. All the rest were wrong. And the two things that were right was a, there would be a foreign head of state on the podium with Reagan during the State of the Union that had never been done before in history. And it would be female, and she'd be wearing a red hat. Out of 18 pages, those are the only two things that were right. It turns out it was Maggie Thatcher. And in the paper, in the newspaper in San Francisco, I had a picture, a color picture of her wearing a red hat. The rest of it was totally wrong. So fortunately, you didn't end up running that through the system, which would have caused, when it didn't happen, it would have caused an enormous problem. Exactly correct. Now, there's a, a second sort of similar thing actually with the same remote viewer. Um, this remote viewer was tasked. Uh, what's going to happen during the Reagan Christmas tree lighting ceremony on this date? Because they had evidence that there might be an attack. And the remote viewer gave a detailed description of a senior military officer being kidnapped off the streets of Italy. That had nothing to do at all with this tasking. But it was right. That's when General Dozier was snatched off the streets of, uh, of Italy. And that the viewers played a significant role in that case as well. Not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, the reason not really. Every psychic in the world was writing to the <laughs> Italian police. You know, so they flooded the poor police people in Italy. And one of our uh, people from uh, uh DIA, or Dale Graff, was on the ground there trying to help. And they said, Dale would say, we got this beautiful remote viewing by one of our top guys. And the police said, no way. Go away. What happened is after the fact, when they found Dozier, uh, it turned out that one remote viewing by this viewer was correct. Hmm. In fact, we have written up in one of our books the, the debrief of Dozier on, on that issue. And he said, the only reason you could know about those details about my captivity being chained to a radiator, blah, blah, all that stuff is because you had an agent, a turned agent there with me. And if that's so, why was I being held prisoner for so long? And they told him how it happened. He said, we need to train military officers and executives on what to think about their environment so psychics can find you, end quote. Interesting. Now, um, in view of the fact that this doesn't always work all the time and for other factors, um, you know, not everybody in the government and in Congress and in the military and the intelligence agencies 
were in favor of this. So what kind of opposition did you encounter when you were heading the program? Was it, for example, difficult to get funding? I mean, $20 million sounds like a lot, but not when it's spread over 20 years. Yeah, and in terms of other intelligence programs, it's chump change. Doesn't they wouldn't even cover stamp budget? <laughs> um, we had a series of protectors. Uh, one of a fellow is uh, was deputy director for science and technical intelligence at the, at the Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, Dr. Jack Verona. And he's still with us. He's getting a little long in the tooth, and he stood in the way of the skeptics. The problem is the reverse side of this thing is what the field, what Stargate did for the intelligence community was so well liked by people who knew about the data. It was briefed all the way up to two separate presidents, vice presidents, agency directors. So there are a lot of skeptics in between, but boy, the bosses said buzz off. (laughs) But still those um, give an example of how frustrating it would be. After the program closed, Joe McMonagall and I spent a decade trying to get it restarted. And uh, at the working level, who are involved in getting the actual data and, and informing decision makers, they loved it. At the boardroom, which was sort of intermediate between that and the top guys who had all retired for the most part, uh, wouldn't have nothing to do with it. So we gave up. Now, uh, one top guy... Um, who was then uh, the minority uh, director, minority, uh, what do they call him? In, 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 in some intelligence committee, he was the more, a minority Republican mm-hmm. in charge. And that was William S. Cohen. And he was a major, major supporter of what we did and stood in the way of uh, skeptics. The, when he was on, in, in the intelligence committee, they, the way the government works here, um, they have what are called uh, authorizations for funding money, authorizing. So the Senate Select Committee for Intelligence authorized $6 million for our program. Authorized doesn't mean appropriated. It means they, we just need this. And so that goes over to the, uh, to the uh, uh, finance committees, both in the House and the Senate. And they argue out, they say, okay, we got far too much request for money authorization than there is in the budget, <laughs> right? So someone has to draw a line. And uh, eventually the $6 million got whittled down to $2 million and we got the money that way. And then uh, years later, uh, it turned out uh, Cohen became Secretary of Defense uh, under the uh, 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 Clinton administration. And it turned out that uh, Angela Ford knows him really well. And, Angela, uh, Angela Ford was one of the viewers from the yeah, Fort Meade program. That's correct. And so it turns out that uh, I was we were writing, um, putting all these books together called the Stargate Archives. And I, uh, I said, I said to Angela, let's get, let's meet Cohen. So we went to his office on K Street. He's now retired from the from the government. And uh, long story short, I said, hey, uh, would you be willing to write a forward for this data since you were so instrumental in making sure that it survived? It said, be my pleasure. So we have now a forward by the former Secretary of Defense saying how good this stuff is. Mm. In 1995, the program ended up being shut down. And at the time, why did people think that was happening? And has anything else been learned since then about why it was shut down? 
Lord, do we? Um, when uh, it turns out the Congress had what's called a Congressionally Directed Activity, CDA, and the Congress directed the CIA to do a 20-year retrospective evaluation of whether this was any good or not. And if they conclude it is good, would they be, they would be tasked by Congress to take the program away from the Defense Intelligence Agency and put it in charge of uh, CIA directly. Mm -hmm. Okay. CIA then hired uh, the Army uh, AR uh, was AIR the Army Institute Institute I, what's, what's it? AIR um, ah. American Institutes of Research, that's an army organization. And they were hired to do the evaluation. Long story short, they did a hatchet job. This was a uh, report that was overseen by Jessica Utz, who is a professor of statistics, and also Ray Hyman, who is a yeah. professor of psychology and a skeptic. Yeah, well, even Ray Hyman said there's evidence that he can't explain that this stuff is real. Mm -hmm. And then just got so they were in agreement to that. They, but, they, but, the, but the AIR report basically said um, the, the jury is still out whether it was useful or not for intelligence collection. So they wouldn't even let me, the program director at that time, have a copy of it, either the unclassified or the, or the class, uh, classified version. So I went to Washington and I went into Cohen's office and said I was really pissed off. Uh, they didn't give me a copy of the, of the report. He says, here, take mine. And he said, he asked me, could I refute it? And I said, well, probably so. I, I heard from the rumor line what was in Jessica Vermeer what was in it. And he said, write a report and pull no punches. Which I wrote a paper in the Journal of Parapsychology, uh, published it as to what was going on, blah, blah, blah. Turns out everything I said in that paper was wrong. Mm. <laughs> Completely off base. So, so and, what, did you, what did you say? What was your theory at the time? Well, it was pretty clear um, that I thought the fix was in. I had given them 10 of my best papers, and they never read them. I gave them a list of people and users that they should go talk to. They didn't interview any of them, all right? They basically didn't do the, the – they disobeyed Congress to do this 20-year retrospective. They only looked one year back in history. So I thought that was the reason. That, that it was written by a bunch of skeptics who didn't want this thing to survive. And they're right. It, it shut it down. However, years later, uh, while we're putting the Stargate Archive collection books together, we found from the CIA itself what actually happened. What actually happened is this. Uh, after the Cold War, the intelligence communities were still getting a lot of money which were somehow the Congress was saying, why do you need all this money? We're, we're not doing all this stuff anymore. And the CIA asked, uh, was directed by Congress, and we have the actual CIA memo, not from us, saying, look, if you don't slim down all your satellite little programs, which included us, if you don't shut them down, we're going to close the CIA. They were threatening to close the CIA. And the CIA had other problems at the times at the time, like the Alder James scandal, where they had a mole that yep. was helping the Soviets that was That's uncovered. That's what drove, drove all this stuff, the, the Alder James uh, story. And so they they now the guy who did it uh, was happy to get us off, you know, close us down. But he now had a, a directive 
uh, to by Congress that it had to whittle not only our program, but a whole bunch of other smaller ones because ours was small. You know, mm -hmm. so that's that's why it went away. OK, um, now, after it went away, you mentioned you tried you and Joe tried for a decade to try to restart it in some way. Um, what kind of what kind of things were you proposing? I know one involved actually a, a, an effort we might have done in conjunction with the Russians now that the Cold War was over. Um, when the Cold War was over, uh, I had an opportunity to go to Moscow in 20 uh, in 1992, just after the government fell there. Uh, with one of my dear late colleagues, uh, Larissa Valenskaya. Uh, she changed her name and became known as Laura V. Faith. Uh, we traveled together probably six or seven times to Moscow during that era. And um, cute story. The people that we met, in fact, I wrote two papers about it, were not military at all. They were, frankly, the Russians with uh, some of their non-military people in fact, even some of their military people would make New Age California look like hard science. <laughs> they were really off the off the off the charts there. Um, but I was giving a talk. Uh, I met Kogan, this very famous guy, very sweet man, and he arranged for me to give a talk at Moscow State University. So I was there giving this talk at Moscow State, and Larissa was translating English into Russian. And two guys in suits walk in the back door and I'm like, uh oh, two guys in suits at the university. This doesn't bode well. And they said to Larissa, come with us. And we did. And we went over to the Ministry of Defense. And um, they had specially, uh, do you know what a SCIF is? Do your viewers know SCIF? Special Compartment and Information Facility. Only top secret stuff is in them. There's one in Congress and we had one at SRI and so on. And you're um, not allowed to take it out anything out. <laughs> so uh, we went into a Russian skiff and there in in civic, civilian clothes was Alexei, Alexei Yurovich Sabin, who is um, an admiral and in charge of their psychic program, which is. Uh, so this uh, is their equivalent of Stargate. Yes, indeed. Under the magical name group 10,003. <laughs> <laughs> and we became it was very interesting guy and he has two phds one in philosophy and one in, in mathematics very very smart man and uh, he was still in the ministry of defense and he reported uh in his food chain the next person above him would be equivalent to the u.s chairman of the joint chiefs of staff they had 120 remote viewers in that period compared to us having like 23 you know, not, yeah, but that'll spread over time at any that, given time. Yeah, right. right. At any and, given time between three and six or seven. Something like that. Yeah. So um, I had talked to him. We met him on a number of occasions. Uh, one time we were out there and uh, having far too much vodka, uh, 11 straight shots of vodka. I don't know if you know, a uh, Russian shot is like that. <laughs> I'm not joking. Mug-sized. <laughs> Almost. And so I don't drink anything, so I was really out cold. Uh, the next day, we were meeting at this place with the, with the Russian remote viewers and the military and the GRU, which is their intelligence gathering army, the arm of the military. And uh, 
we're sitting around a table. The GRU uh, is the successor to the KGB. Is that correct? No, that's FSB. The GRU okay. is, is equivalent to our military intelligence. Okay. Together. Yeah. Like DIA then. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we're sitting out there and Larissa's is with me and Joe McMonagle is with me at that time. And um, the next day after drinking all that Buckeye, I filled my glass full of water. And when you talk to any of the senior Russian military people, and in fact, in general, it's very important. His, his name is Alexei Yurovich Sabin. Instead of calling him General Sabin or Admiral Sabin, I would call him the tradition is Alexei Yurovich. That is a formal way of, of greeting him. Yeah. And the Yurovich is a patronym, meaning he it means son of Yuri. Exactly correct. Thank you. So I was giving a talk, uh, talking around the table with, with his staff there. He was still in the military at the time. And I said, Alexei Yurovich, and he interrupted me. And I've known the man now for 22 years, and this is the only time he spoke to me in English. And he said, Ed, call me Alexei. We're friends. And his staff had... <laughs> <laughs> then he switched back to uh, Russian. And as we were getting ready to leave, he told Larissa, look, here is my organization chart. We have a problem here, the same that you do, called terrorism. People have attacked us from the southern you know, tier of our country. I want a joint program with the, with the DIA. So uh, he says, you're going to write up a, what's called a contact report. I said, yes, sir. I've done it all the time. He said, yeah, I know. I expect you to do that. Uh, Talk to your people and let's get a joint program going. So I wrote up a 30 page report with the guy's organization chart and pictures and all. And so I said, take as many pictures as we want of us. So I've got some really funny pictures of, of Sabin and Joe totally swazzled. I mean, they're out of their mind. They can't even stand up. They've had so much. They're like, oh. I said, I'm going to publish those pictures one day. You'll be sorry. <laughs> um, I literally, uh, Jimmy, I literally handed that report to the three-star admiral in charge of the Defense Intelligence Agency in the Pentagon here. This guy, Sabin, wants to have a joint program. There are a number of reasons it's worthy. One, it's cheap. A bottle of scotch will get everything you need. <laughs> Secondly, it does not put anyone in harm's way. And the guy said, yes, Admiral Wilson was his name. And he said, uh, it's great. Thank you very much. I'm going to Moscow next week. I'll bring it up. Well, I, I walked out of the building, out of his office. You could hear him throwing it in the wastebasket. Never happened. So, so he wasn't interested at all? None whatsoever. Okay. These days, you are the head and the founder of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. Tell us about uh, what kind of work you're doing now, and uh, have you had any interesting findings recently? I mean, we're going to have a, a separate discussion in, uh, on, on, on that in general, but can you give us maybe a preview? Sure. Um, I was used to getting the smallest contract that I would even except while I was on Stargate, it was half a million dollars. The organizations, SRI and SAIC, wouldn't even submit a proposal if it were less than that. Because, you know, they have all this bureaucracy within the building and, you know, there's literally dozens of people who are involved in writing proposals to the federal government. And so it costs a lot of money to do that. So um, when the program closed, I was out of money and I was getting unemployment insurance. <laughs> Literally, I had no job. 
And it turned out a very well-known parapsychologist at the time, and psychologist, is a guy named Robert Morris, Bob Morris. And he was a psychologist here in the States. And what happened at that time, which is an interesting story for your listeners, a fiction writer from Hungary by the name of Arthur Kersler. And Arthur Kersler bequeathed, when he passed away, a huge sum of money to be given to the psychology department at Edinburgh University for the study of parapsychology. And they have a big parapsychology program, relatively speaking, at Edinburgh University. Because of that bequeath. They didn't have any before that. Mm. So uh, the psychology department was really nervous that you know, we, we don't want to do parapsychology. We'll get killed here, right? So they had a nationwide search to find out who would be the first occupier of that professorship, the college chair. And Bob Morris won. So he and his family moved to Edinburgh. And for 17 years, he was in charge of this unit. And he was so successful at it um, that they, the university started bragging about it on their website. And not only that, Bob Morris uh, became head of the British Psychology Department uh, division uh, at, the, at the federal level in Britain. Very famous, well guy. He spawned about 50 PhDs in parapsychology. Very, very smart guy. However, one of the things that Bob had run into was a group down in Porto, Portugal called the Be-All Foundation, B-I-A-L Foundation. The Be-All Corporation is, is Portuguese largest uh, uh, man, manufacturing, pharmaceutical manufacturing. And the guy in charge of that was the fourth generation owner, a fellow medical doctor by the name of Luis Portela. Speaks fluent English, was educated in the UK and so on. And he decided that he was interested in ESP in that sort of thing. And he asked Bob what to do. Um, and Bob said, well, uh, you need to have a private foundation so that you can donate money. So uh, Portela set up a, a foundation called the Beale Foundation. And he takes some profits from the ph pharmaceutical thing. And he funds about every two years, he puts half a million euros which is chump change, frankly. I yelled at him, you got to put more money. They fund parapsychology at about 50K euros is the maximum grant you can get for three years. Now, that does not fund anybody at the senior level anywhere. And so uh, years later, a decade later, he funded me, actually, saved my butt. Um, and I, over, the, over a decade, I have about a half a million dollars worth of support for this small little company. Okay, but to do real basic research, and I've had 10 proposals, three of which were turned down, but seven were successful. Uh, and I can tell you, I'll give you a, sort of a uh, trailer uh -huh. <laughs> for it here in a minute. One of the, th uh, so basically, uh, they've been doing that, and they're still doing it. Um, okay, now uh, I retired from there. I was on their science advisory board for a while. And I told them at my last meeting there that I wanted to sort of step aside, let some younger people take over, which is happening, which is good news. Okay, um, what theory things did we know uh, based on from Stargate and then later that we thought of the problem? First of all, we're all materialists. We're not interested in survival after bodily death and consciousness, you know, uh, none of that. We, we think all through the program, actually, we thought that this will be eventually understood in terms of physics, 
psychology, physiology, and maybe we'll throw in some spirituality and philosophy in here, but it's all in here in the brain, not external. That consciousness, uh, this whole program thought, including me, that consciousness is an emergent property of the wetware here. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people disagree with that. Fair enough. We have evidence they don't. <laughs> they have strictly pers personal experiential evidence, which is very powerful. I myself have had those kinds of experiences. Okay, so one of the things that we noticed on the project, the uh, Stargate program, that changes of entropy of a target site, people did much, 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 much better than when there was no change of entropy. In terms of operational work, if you wanted to find uh, uh, some cocaine, it was hard to find. But if you wanted to find some radioactive material, it was easy to find. If you uh, were tasked in you know, all the right blinding conditions and so on, if you were tasked on an underground nuclear explosion, we would nail that sucker. So. So because on. radiation involves the amplification of entropy. Yeah, change of entropy. Yeah, making it easier to find. Right. So that's the hypothesis. Okay. So the um, BL people funded me to explore that. And we found it. Not only that, uh, just here, here's the trailer. Um, I don't know if you know this about the normal sensory systems, the six that we're five that we're familiar with. Actually, it turns out there's a lot more recently, but let's talk about the big five. All of them are change, uh, are change uh, sensitive. In other words, uh, if you could focus on a spot on the wall and you're staring at it, your eyes are moving back and forth, back and forth, and you can't stop it. If you were able to stop your eyes from micro-wiggling, your experience would be, would be a blank slate black. The way to think of that is in electrical engineering, uh, there's a term called AC, alternating current and direct current, right? All of our sensory systems are, are set to be a, a alternating current sensitive. The capacitors in there to use a technical term. And that and that's true for your ears, I mean your nose. Somebody walks in with too much uh, cologne on or perfume, uh, you smell it immediately. Oh my God. Yeah. And then you get used to it. And the technical term is habituate. And so with that, okay, if the S in extrasensory perception is a sensory system, which we didn't know, then there must be something that ESP is better when that thing is changing compared to when that thing is not changing. And we found it, thanks to the BL people. Okay. It's the change of entropy. Okay. Well, I look forward to discussing that with you in our uh, next conversation. Um, is there anything, before we close this one, is there anything else you'd like to tell us or anything you'd like to plug? And we'll have a link to your uh, page on Amazon so people can get your books. Okay. The only book that I'd recommend people getting is ESP Wars. Uh, it's a fun read and so on. There's a second of uh, a two, if you're more interested in the technical stuff, unfortunately, it's expensive, 100 bucks. But it, it gives a, a technical overview of these two books called Extrasensory Perception Support Skepticism and Science. One has the history and one is all theory, theory of science functioning. But you know, you've got to be pretty geeky to, to enjoy yeah. that. If you're having trouble sleeping, this is a good book to buy. <laughs> um, but then ESP uh, Wars is the is about the Russian-American interaction. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. And it's funny in places, but quite amusing in places. So I think that's basically the, from looking through this. Oh, you asked me about William Proxmire and the Golden Fleece Award. Yes, yes. Uh, so for people who may not remember, William Proxmire was a Democratic senator from Wisconsin, and he was a critic of excessive or wasteful government spending. And every year he would have an award he would give called the Golden Fleece, a uh, right. pun off of Jason and the Argonauts, search for the Golden Fleece, and then fleecing the public of their money. Exactly. So uh, so tell us about uh, tell us about his involvement. Well, it turns out we we're all terrified <laughs> that we'd be in his crosshairs. Turns out that was wrong. He loved our work. We have letter exchanges we've published that he was in great support of what we did. We were not ever in threat of getting the Golden Fleece Award. Well, that's great. So yeah. um, he actually ended up being a friend of the program rather than uh, one of yes. the people targeting it. You bet. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. May, thank you very much for being with us today. And um, I look forward to our next discussion. Uh, I would too also, Jimmy. Jimmy, that was great. So one of the things Dr. May did in the interview was express skepticism regarding the training methodology that Ingo Swan developed. Uh, correct. That method is known as CRV. Originally, it stood for coordinate remote viewing, but today it stands for controlled remote viewing. CRV breaks up the viewing process into a series of stages that provide a controlled structure for the experience, which is why it's called controlled remote viewing. Dr. May said this worked well for Ingo, but not for a lot of other people. This claim will be controversial with Ingo's supporters. It will, but in this series, I'm letting, I'm letting everyone speak from their own experience and express their own views. I mean, these are, after all, interviews rather than debates. So I'm here to listen, not to advocate for any particular position. One of Dr. May's criticisms was that Ingo would give trainees feedback in the middle of a session so that if a person said the target contained a particular element like water, Ingo would confirm this. So you could sort of play 20 questions and figure out what the target was. Do you have an idea of how supporters of Ingo's method would respond? Ultimately, they need to speak for themselves, and we'll raise that issue with users of Ingo's method in a future episode and see what they have to say. For the moment, my impression is that they would say that giving that type of feedback is something that generally should only be done during training when a viewer is first learning the CRV session, but then he needs to be weaned off of it so that he doesn't have that kind of confirmation in an operational remote viewing session. Uh, whether students are effectively able to transition away from that and what the long-term success rate is for Ingo's method in operational situations is a different question and one that we can look at more closely in the future. You indicated that we're going to have a future discussion with Dr. May. What can you tell us about that? At the time we recorded the discussion we've just heard, we also did a two-part interview on the parapsychological research that Dr. May has been conducting and what his findings have been. As you heard, one of his findings concerns entropy. Entropy is the tendency of a system to go from a state of order to disorder, uh, for energy to dissipate and for the system to run down. It's why stars shine and why you need to eat to replenish your body's fuel supply. What he discovered is that remote viewers seem to have an easier time if there are changes in the entropy level at a particular target. So we'll be discussing that, but there is a lot more to what we talked about, and it's really fascinating.
Uh, Dr. May has some very unique views uh, that contrast with those of many other parapsychologists. And so we go into these in some detail. So be sure and check out our next pair of interviews with Dr. May coming up in future. So, Jimmy, what further resources do you have for the, the listener and viewer on Dr. May? Well, uh, for those who are listening to an audio version of the podcast, we'll have a link to the video version on my YouTube channel. And like I said, please subscribe and hit the bell while you're there. Uh, we'll also have a link to Ed's book, ESP Wars East and West, that describes the conflict over uh, remote viewing and psychic functioning between the former Soviet Union and the United States. Also, his author page on Amazon, his uh, website, Laboratories for Fundamental Research. We'll have links to SRI and SAIC, the two government contractors that uh, hosted the program. Also, information on Ingo Swan, Operant Conditioning, Robert Monroe, the Monroe Institute, Joseph McMonagall, information on the kidnapping of Major General James Dozier, and the Soviet military unit 10003, the Soviet equivalent of Stargate. Excellent. So we have mysterious feedback this time on our recent episode on the Exodus. And our first feedback comes from Joshua, who commented on YouTube, who said, Excellent show. I particularly like the breakdown of the 10 plagues and its relationship to the Egyptian flooding and agricultural cycle. That's not one I've heard before and something that is especially intriguing to me. I do believe the exodus happened. One piece of evidence that I was surprised you did not mention is Moses' name itself. I find it likely that Moses is the second part of an Egyptian theophoric name such as Tutmos, Amos, or Ramses. These mean child of Toth, child of the moon, and child of Ra, respectively, which is an obvious dilemma if Yahweh is the one true God, so the Egyptian deity's name was dropped by the author so as not to offend God by acknowledging other gods. Yeah, theophoric names were very common in the ancient Near East. A theophoric name is one that bears the name of a god within it. And you see lots of these in the Bible, like Daniel. Don E-L means, Don means judge, and the E suffix means my, and L means God. So Daniel means God is my judge. And since it has the name L in it, uh, it's a theophoric name because Daniel bears the name of a god within it. Also, all of those Hebrew names that you see that like have Yah or Ia in them, that's shortened for Yahweh. So those are also theophoric names. And they were very common in Egypt as well. Um, in addition to the translations that uh, Joshua gives, the names like uh, Tutmos and Amos and Ramesses, they've got that Mos element in there, Meses or Moses element. We don't really know about the vowels in Egyptian because it wasn't written with them. So Egyptologists, when we're unclear about a vowel, will frequently just shove in E as a placeholder. So if we know MSS was part of one of their names, it'll be Meses, like in Ramesses. And that means it can mean child. It also means things like born. And so you'll sometimes hear Ramesses be translated as like Ra is born or born of Ra or child of Ra in this case. And it is quite possible that Moses was originally a theophoric name that has been circumcised 
to remove the theophoric, the the theological part of the name. And um, so that is quite possible. And I if I had to guess if Moses was a theophoric name that he was given by the Egyptian princess, it could well have been uh, Ramesses. Ra is born, um, based on, uh, as we'll hear in an upcoming episode where we talk about the timing of the Exodus, not just that it occurred, but when it occurred. Um, and so he, he could have been, he, he could have been named after Ra, or it could have been one of the other Egyptian gods, and then they could have dropped that after he became a worshiper of the Hebrew god Yahweh. So that's entirely possible. On the other hand, we do seem to have some records of Moses or Messes being used as an Egyptian name non-theophorically so that it did not have a divine element in the name. And because of uh, we do have instances of that in the historical record, I couldn't be confident that Moses is a theophoric name. I think it's quite possible, maybe even likely, but I couldn't prove it. And so that's why I didn't go into it you know, given that I was also trying to keep the episode of reasonable length. Uh, Colleen sent an email. She wrote, I have a question regarding the criterion of embarrassment. In the show, Jimmy stated that slavery would have been an embarrassing origin story for the Israelites, and therefore they would not have stated that that were it not true. However, it is also stated that it was told to Abraham by God that the Israelites were set apart and chosen by him and that they would one day enter the promised land after being slaves. Would the fact that they had been promised a new land and then were delivered from slavery through direct divine intervention not diminish or negate a criterion of embarrassment? It seems as though divine deliverance from oppression and being a chosen people might actually be points of pride for the Israelites. Could you elaborate some for me? I don't. I, I recognize that the chosenness of Israel would give them a sense of national pride. And and so, yes, it could take some of the edge off of having previously been a bunch of slaves of a local superpower, but it wouldn't have removed it entirely because if you had just if they had just if they're living in the land and they simply say to themselves, OK, we're the chosen people of God. We conquered this land from the Canaanites and and we're, you know, God has blessed us. Um, why go into the and we used to be slaves? You know, why bring that up if it's not true? Because even if the other elements are things they're taking pride in, we used to be slaves is not something they would take pride in because that's a downer. And um, and as a result, and and I should mention in ancient Near Eastern societies, including ancient Israel, they thought very corporately. I mean, that's like why at Passover, it's what is the significance of this night? It's because God took us out of Egypt and they talk as if they were there for it. Um, so they, they, they have a lot of solidarity in ancient Israel with the prior generations, including the generations that were in slavery in Egypt. And so if they were just making up a national origin story and wanted to aggrandize themselves, like you see in, in many national origin stories, they wouldn't have bothered to include that downer element. Chad writes on Facebook, terrific show as always. I saw the movie on which this book, Patterns of Evidence Exodus by Timothy Mahoney, was based maybe six or seven years ago. Have you seen this hypothesis, Jimmy? 
that Joseph reigned in Egypt during the Middle Kingdom, they critique most contemporary dating of the Egyptian calendar. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So I am familiar with the Patterns of Evidence series. Uh, it's produced by some evangelicals. And I think they're really sweet, well-meaning guys who are totally wrong on their historical claims. Um, they make claims that are not su supported by uh, Egyptology or biblical studies in order to promote a particular view of things. And I don't fault them for having a view and I don't fault them for challenging, uh, you know, received wisdom. It's always good to challenge uh, things and see if they stand up. But I'm afraid this time the standard historical accounts do stand up and they're misusing evidence. I a number of years ago, I uh, went and saw one of the Patterns of Evidence movies, uh, not the one about Joseph reigning during the Middle Kingdom. We actually, it, it, Joseph is more properly dated to the second intermediate period between the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom. Um, and there are a variety of ways that we can know that, which we'll talk about in a future episode on the dating of the Exodus. But um, it, the chronology that the Patterns of Evidence folks promote is not reliable. And I critiqued their um, movie on Moses. And so we'll have a link to that one. And we'll also have another link uh, to give you some feedback on Patterns of Evidence, which we'll learn about in our next piece of feedback. Uh, yes, Dr. David Falk on YouTube wrote on YouTube, this is a really great primer on the Exodus. The content is really sound and fact-based. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Dr. Falk. Uh, for those who may not be who may not be familiar with him, uh, he has he is an Egyptologist and he has a PhD on Egyptology from the University of Liverpool. So he is well qualified in this field and to have him uh, complimenting my uh, coverage of the exodus, the evidence that an exodus like event did happen and uh, have his endorsement I, is, is very gratifying. So thank you, Dr. Falk. I should note he also has a YouTube channel called uh, ancient Egypt and the Bible, which he set up because there's a lot of misinformation out there on YouTube about ancient Egypt and the Bible, including the patterns of evidence stuff. So we'll have a link to his channel. Be sure and check it out. And especially if you're interested in like, why is the patterns of evidence stuff problematic? Uh, Dr. Fox got you covered. He's got some playlists on his channel that are well worth watching. Robert writes on Facebook, if the Merneptah Stele records a victory over Israelites wandering in the Sinai before settling in Canaan, why doesn't the Pentateuch mention fighting with the Egyptians in the account of the wandering in the wilderness? Basically because the, the Pentateuch is not a complete record of everything that happened. It preserves historical traditions that go back to the period of the Exodus, but it doesn't record every single thing that happened. I mean, some of those traditions may have been lost by the time that uh, Genesis was written. Others may have been deemed by the author not to be significant enough or might have been contrary to the to the storyline he was presenting. I mean, if uh, if the key plot point in your tale is our ancestors got out of Egypt, you may not want to mention, oh, yeah, and a few years later, the Egyptians arrived here and kicked our butts. So, um, which is what the Merneptah Stella says, is that Merneptah 
basically kicked the Israelites' butts in some battle um, occurring outside of Egypt, apparently during the period before they were settled in the land. And um, so I could see why that would be left out. Interestingly, and if you if you like look at uh, James K. Hoffmeyer's uh, stuff on uh, the Exodus, he points out and others have pointed out that actually place names that we see in um, like the book of Judges and some of the other early books in the Hebrew Bible actually preserve traces of 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 uh, occasions when an Egyptian pharaoh did do one of their go old like periodical smash and grab raids. And so you'll find places like, oh, this place name is derived from Pharaoh's spring because it's a spring that was at the site of a battle involving Pharaoh. And so they did have this continue to have this interaction in the um, pre-dynastic period of Israel before Israel had a king. Uh, Michael writes on Facebook, love this episode. Listen to it twice over the weekend. Thanks for clearing up the chariot wheels and the Red Sea claims. I was wondering why people didn't make a big deal about it. Now I know it was a hoax. It was, yeah. The, uh, the, the Any claims you see about chariot wheels from the Exodus having been found in the Red Sea are bogus. Um, we don't know, we don't know where the crossing site was, the relevant bodies of, not with precision, uh, the, the relevant bodies of water have not had extensive archaeological surveys done of them. And, um, the Egyptians were using wooden chariot wheels, so they would have rotted over the last 3000 years or 30 200, 30, 300 years, and wouldn't be identifiable today anyway. Uh, Trish writes on Facebook, do you think it's possible Akhenaten was the son of the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus? I wonder this because he did have an older brother that died and something big must have happened in his lifetime to make him turn to monotheism. I don't think so. Um, and partly this is what we'll cover in a future episode on the timing of the Exodus. Uh, Akhenaten was a pharaoh in the 18th dynasty, and he lived about 100 years too early for the Exodus. And so um, I know it could be it can be tempting for people to want to say, "Ooh, maybe Moses inspired Akhenaten towards monotheism, but that doesn't seem to be the evidence. Um, if anything, I mean, the if you want to know more about the ancient Israelite conception of God and how God relates to the pagan deities, go back and listen to our episode on God and the gods, because it's more complex than you, than you might think just from the term monotheism. Um, but uh, in Akhenaten's case, if like he had been in the same generation as Moses and like got converted to monotheism, maybe as a result of watching the Exodus happen, then why would he end up worshiping the sun? Because Yahweh is not a solar deity. And also it doesn't fit with the progression of what we see in the Egyptian monuments. The Egyptian monuments show Akhenaten gradually progressing towards full-blown monotheism to where he's eventually denying the existence of all other deities besides the Aten, which was the solar disk. 
Um, but that's a gradual progression, not something that would be the product of a crisis conversion experience, like watching the Egypt, the Israelite God deliver this tribe from uh, from Egyptian captivity. Um, and then also he's living 100 years too early. Billy D wrote on YouTube, this was a great episode, Jimmy. My only disagreement is that I think an early date, specifically 1446, is correct. I used to agree with the late date, and I don't have an issue with it per se, but ultimately, I think that most of the pieces of evidence to support it, the Merneptah Stele, Kenyon's dating of Jericho pottery, etc., are pretty circumstantial and can be plausibly interpreted the other way, too. Well, I appreciate that. And as always, Billy D, I I welcome alternative perspectives here on Mysterious World. I very much do not expect everybody to agree with me. So always welcome. Uh, always, I always welcome other uh, viewpoints. And in this case, I would mention that actually I used to support the early date for the Exodus, but then became convinced that the later date is actually what the evidence points to. So you and I have kind of had opposite journeys in that respect. Uh, but we'll be talking about that and the reasons for that are the reasons for my own views in the future episode on the dating of the Exodus. And in the meantime, uh, check out Dr. David Falk's YouTube channel where he presents evidence regarding it as well. Victor writes on YouTube, If I recall, Ramesses III's reign went well at first, but towards the end of his reign, it was somewhat ruined by plagues and a workers' revolt. Could Ramses III have been the pharaoh who argued with Moses? It is true that uh, Ramses III's reign did start going badly towards the end. And after Ramesses III's time, the other Ramesside pharaohs just continued to slide um, because uh, Egypt was heading out of the New Kingdom period and uh, things were falling apart. We actually talked in episode 89 about Ramesses III, and his reign did not end so well for him, because if you remember, that's the Black Magic Harem conspiracy episode, where he was cons he was killed by a conspiracy among his secondary wives who enlisted court officials to kill him, including using black magic against him. So uh, if you haven't heard the Black Magic Harem conspiracy episode, go back and listen to episode 89. Um the difficulty is that we have evidence for Israel outside of uh, Egypt prior to Ramesses III because uh, the Merneptah Stella. Uh, Merneptah is the son of Ramesses II, and we have him saying, woohoo, I kicked those Israelite butts uh, while they were out, while he was on his foreign voyages outside of Israel, outside of Egypt. And so we know Israel was already outside of Egypt in the time of Merneptah and thus before the time of Ramesses III. The Sage of Rakaseka on YouTube writes, the problem with a providential arrangement hypothesis is that it renders something clearly amazing as something ordinary. So the distinction between nature and supernature isn't the issue. The distinction between ordinary and remarkable and therefore clearly memorable. It's valid to have an objection there, and that needs to be adequately answered. Well, I uh, I appreciate the concept that uh, the Sage of Rakaseka is explaining here, but I think that actually the hypothesis that has been proposed by various scholars um, that the 
at least, well, to refresh people's memory, nine of the 10 plagues of Exodus are eerily similar to things that actually occur in Egypt as part on a fairly regular basis as part of its agricultural cycle. They seem like exaggerated versions of things that normally happen. And so you can imagine and a particular year where either due to God or due to random chance, you have a particularly intense series of these events, more intense than what normally happens. And that notability then could have been used to uh, to argue that, okay, this is the hand of the Israelite God who is uh, performing these wonders. These are notable events, and he's performing these wonders to tell you, let this people go. And for a Pharaoh who believes in the existence of gods that are controlling nature, if a bunch of abnormally strong natural events start happening, when you've got a prophet there interpreting them for you this way, you could be convinced. I mean, uh, imagine a thought experiment. I'm even a little tempted to write a play about this. But suppose it's the early 20th century and you're in Kansas and it's during the Depression. So things are going badly in society and you're the mayor of a little town in Kansas and you've had arrested a particular family even though um, the evidence against them is kind of sketchy. But you've still got him, in, got him in jail, except for this one guy, this one member of this family who is widely regarded as kind of a religious nut job. And then the religious nut job comes to you and says, God has told me that my family is being wrongly imprisoned. And if you don't release them, he's going to smite the town. And then, because it's the night, it's the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl happens. And all of a sudden, you're having this unprecedented dust storm that's occurring. Well, you might look at this unusual dust storm that you're not used to having and say, oh, maybe the maybe brother so and so actually has heard from God. And then. Brother, but you're not convinced. And then brother so-and-so comes back to you and says, see, I told you that dust storm was from God. And if you don't let my family go, there's going to be an even worse thing happen to the town. And so shortly thereafter, there's a massive thunderstorm that destroys the crops that the dust storm didn't deal with. And, and you're still thinking as mayor, maybe he's right, but he comes back and says, yeah, that was another sign from God. And if you don't let my family go, there's going to be something even worse that God is going to send. And a couple weeks after that, there's a tornado that rips up downtown Nowheresville and most of the town is destroyed. Well, after that, you might think, let's let his family go. Maybe God is actually doing this. So if you have a series of events that could occur in Kansas, but are occurring in conjunct in an abnormally strong way, in a way that is also being interpreted by the local prophet, you might conclude, yeah, this is all a message from God. So 
I, I don't think we should dismiss this. I think Pharaoh or his court officials easily could, if they were confronted with a scenario like that, could have said, you know, maybe the Israelite God is doing something here. We should let these people out of here. It's not worth the hassle. Uh, Deborah on Facebook wrote, I'm curious if Jimmy has looked into and has an opinion on the suggested cause of death of the firstborn Egyptians made in the Exodus decoded uh, Simka Yakubovici documentary. If I recall, the suggestion was that there was an oxygen-robbing gas, which only affected the firstborn because they were given a prime sleeping location near the ground where the deadly gas could kill them. It seems the documentary suggested it was like gas is released by a lake lower in the continent of Africa or from the explosion of a volcanic island, the documentary reports, as being part of the cause of the plagues. Anyway, just curious. Well, I have heard that and similar uh, theories, naturalistic theories, to try to explain the death of the firstborn. I've also heard ones involving nutrition and things like that. And I'm I'm open in principle to seeing evidence for these, but I haven't seen evidence for them, and I'm natively skeptical of them. You'll notice I mentioned earlier nine of the ten plagues of Exodus are similar to what happens in the Egyptian agricultural cycle. The one that is not similar is the death of the firstborn. And so if you believe that the death of the firstborn happened, it would lend itself to a supernatural interpretation rather than a providential timing interpretation. And... um, and so, you know, I, I want to be open to everything and consider evidence for any proposal anybody cares to make. But I have not seen good evidence for any naturalistic explanation of the death of the firstborn. And as a result, I'm skeptical of such explanations. In this case in particular, um, I am on a, I mean, if, if someone can show me that we have evidence that firstborn sons slept lower to the ground than the rest of the family, that would help this interpretation. I mean, at least that would be supporting one of its premises. But I don't know that to be the case. And my understanding of ancient Near Eastern sleeping habits is that they tended to sleep on mats on the ground, not in an elevated way. And unless you're up on the roof, sleeping on your roof, but even then you're sleeping on a mat that's on the floor of your roof. And so um, so I just have not seen evidence for this. But, you know, I'm open in principle. Scott sent an email. He said, I enjoyed the episode on the historicity of the Exodus. I live in Alaska, and I have always thought it was interesting that various native cultures, Yupik, Haida, Tlingit, Inupiaq, etc., traditionally all had stories about a raven who either played a role in creation or who was a sort of very early cultural hero. This covers a wide swath of sparsely populated territory from Siberia through basically all of Alaska and much of coastal British Columbia. The accounts differ in their details, but the similarities are too much for me to say it's just a coincidence. I'm not an expert, but I imagine that for these related traditions to have been so widespread that they likely reflect an extremely ancient kernel. This makes me think it is not so far-fetched to believe that a preliterate culture could preserve at least the broad outlines of the Exodus story for several hundred years. And as we pointed out in our previous episode on the Exodus, and as we'll continue to discuss in our future episode of the Exodus, they didn't have to preserve this memory for that long before it got written down. Um, I mean, even if you buy the early date 
for the Exodus, um, no more than 400 years. And really what we're going to see is that it was for no more than 200 years. And you can easily have traditions, especially relating to an event like how you got here in this land, that can be preserved for 200 years easy. And we've also mentioned uh, like we did in our recent episodes on the Great Flood, there can be traditions that are passed down for thousands of years, like some of the astronomical ones relating to Ursa Major and the Pleiades. Um, now, I didn't conclude that there was a global flood. I concluded that there was not. But um, traditions can be passed down for much longer than the 200 years it was necessary for this tradition to be passed down. So that's all the feedback we have. And thank you, everyone, for sending in your feedback. We really greatly appreciate hearing from you. Uh, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Well, this time we dealt with parapsychology and classified programs. So I thought we'd hit each one of those in our Mysterious Headlines. First, parapsychology. Uh, there is a skeptic named uh, Chris French, who historically has for many years, has disbelieved in parapsychological phenomena and referred to parapsychology as a pseudoscience, which is a common position among skeptics. But really, parapsychologists actually hold themselves usually to higher standards uh, in study design and proof than people in other fields. That's something we definitely talk about in my upcoming discussions with Dr. May. Well, Chris French, even though he still doesn't believe in psychic functioning, has had the intellectual integrity to sit back and look at discussions of, well, what would count, what would make something a pseudoscience, and then compare it to what parapsychologists actually do. And he concluded they don't fit pseudoscience. They're not doing what people say pseudoscience is. They're actually doing science. Um, and so he wrote this article on uh, why I titled Why I Now Believe Parapsychology is a Science, Not a Pseudoscience. And it's on uh, skeptic.org.uk. So it's on a skeptical website. And he himself, like I said, still doesn't believe in psychic functioning, but he does believe that this is a real area of science. So I thought that itself, his conversion on that point to recognizing the value of the of the methods that are being used is itself an achievement. So check that out. Then on the classified side of things, lots of people worry, wonder about Area 51 and what's going on there. Well, for a number of years, I've been aware of a former employee of Area 51, not Bob Lazar, <laughs> although he was a former employee. It just, I don't believe his story. Um, but there, there, I have been aware of a former employee named T.D. Barnes, who was involved in the development of radar systems and how to manipulate and use radar um, out at Area 51. And he recently gave an interview. So we'll have a, uh, a link to where you can read about that interview and watch the video of it. And in it, he discusses whether or not he thinks the recent uh, ATIP UAP sightings are aliens or terrestrial or what they might be based on his experience actually working at Area 51. Excellent. Cool. I'll have to check that out. So that'll do it for us. We want to hear from you. 
your feedback on what your theories are about remote viewing and what Dr. May discussed today, you can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page or sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what are we going to talk about next time? Next week is a fifth Friday, so we'll be doing fifth Friday weird questions and be considering topics like superhero guardian angels, the Ark of the Covenant, whether Judas is in hell, whether there are pizza rolls in heaven, how Neanderthals relate to creation, and more weird questions. Oh, I'm sure my son would love for there to be pizza rolls in heaven, so I can't wait for that. <laughs> Folks, be sure to join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. That's StarQuest to 66866. You can find Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash stargate.